everyone. No, it's not Fox Across America. We got to get Chris Bordier to get that right on every other Wednesday. It's Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. This is the very first time I'm actually doing a show remotely. We are respecting and maintaining social distance for our team at WATR. Um, so as I work for a hospital, I am doing this from home live, and I will have my guest on remotely too. So hopefully this works out well. Um, we, Because we are both going to be remote, we're not going to be able to take callers, and I apologize for that. We're tying up the phone lines. So what we will do is at the end of the program, I will give out my email. So if you have really um, significant questions you feel you want to ask me, I always can get those answers to you. So I'll give my email out at the end of the show. Um, we are definitely tonight um, changing the focus of how we do our show, and we are going to focus on definitely the most current topic out there, which is COVID-19, and we wanted to put a different spin on it. I think the way we wanted to look at this tonight was to be able to give you some information to show you some of the things that are happening behind the scenes to help prepare and arm our doctors, both in the hospital and in the community, um, focus on some of the resources we have available to everyone out there in the community, and you know, focus on some of those things that you don't always have to access at your fingertips. Um, at St. Mary's Hospital and Trinity Health of New England um, Medical Group and Trinity Health of New England, where we start our meetings out with a reflection. And I was sent a reflection um, through a physician relations group that I'm part of. That's part of Trinity. Um, we have a group of physician relation consultants or physician liaisons across the country, all Trinity hospitals. And we meet every month um, via WebEx or, or Skype, however you want to put it. And we have this great um, dialogue with each other, and we share these reflections with each other. And I recently got one um, last week that I really wanted to share because I think it's really pertinent. So indulge me for a minute. When this is over, we may never again take for granted a handshake from a stranger, full shelves at the store, conversations with neighbors, a crowded theater, Friday night out, a taste of communication, a routine checkup, a school rush each morning, coffee with a friend, the stadium roaring, each deep breath we take, a boring Tuesday, or life itself. When this ends, we may find that we have become more like the people we wanted to be, we were called to be, we hope to be, and we may stay that way better for each other because of the worst. And I thought that was an incredible quote, so I wanted to share that with you. So tonight on the phone I have with me um, Dr. John Rodas, who is the president of St. Francis Hospital, one of our Trinity Health of New England hospitals in Hartford. Hi, Doc. Can you hear me? Hey. Hey, Robin. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you so much. So as I said um, in my earlier opening the show, we cannot take callers because we can't get um, all the phone lines because they asked me to do it remotely. So I'm going to have people email me questions. So I hope that's okay with you. Sure, it's fine. So I want to thank you for joining me tonight. And we do want to talk a bit about um, the COVID-19. And what I talked to you about a little bit yesterday when we kind of had a meeting early on, you know, I wanted to focus on what we're doing locally here for Trinity Health of New England and some of the things that you got, you are doing and part of your team on a day-to-day -day basis. 
and focusing. I know we use the word command center and incident command center and what that means and how we're connected across the country. So I don't know if you want to touch base on that. Sure, I'm happy to. Yeah, so um, what happens is there's actually three layers of command centers. Uh, Trinity at their national headquarters, uh, which is in, in outside of Detroit, Michigan, in Livonia, Michigan, has a command center that runs every day. And then he, we hear Trinity Health in New England that, as you know, encompasses St. Mary's Hospital and St. Francis Hospital and Mount Sinai Rehab Hospital and Johnson Memorial, as well as Mercy up in Springfield, Mercy Medical Center in Springfield. We have, each of us uh, have incident command centers and the regional office, Trinity Health in New England regional office, which is housed uh, on our campus here at St. Francis, uh, has an incident command center. And so there's, you know, three layers, but really constant communication between all three as, as issues arise. And then across, across the platform as well. So we all communicate regularly with each other every day. So I can tell you that, and I know it's probably kind of, hard to hear each other a little bit because we're both remote, so I want to make sure that the audience can hear us. We, every day I get communication sent to me um, from our national office to um, share with physicians, um, specifically to my team, and then our team here locally looks at that to make sure there's not additional information we need to provide them. So we're arming physicians, community, and our hospital-owned with the most up-to-date information that we have. And as we know, just like this show, it's changing every day. So what we talk about today may be totally different tomorrow. Yeah, well, certainly very dynamic. Uh, there's no doubt we get constant updates um, and sometimes numerous times during the day uh, to that point. So another another thing I wanted to share with the community is what what is a command center? So what does that mean? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. I realize I didn't really explain it, right? So an incident command center um, literally is basically a room uh, set up with multiple phones, uh, with whiteboards, uh, with contact numbers for uh, all of our leaders at multiple levels throughout the organization. And uh, calls come in, and it's staffed by senior leaders all the time. So either I'm there almost every day along with my vice presidents, and usually three of us, four of us could be there at any one time. But senior leadership in a room with a single point of contact phone number that anybody in the organization that has an issue that arises that can't be resolved at the local level calls the command center, and we basically address it and resolve it and or arc it up to the next level as need be. So the community also calls into a hotline, too. So we call that the command center, too. So do those calls happen at the same, in the same room, local, well, for, at the hospital, at St. Francis? Yeah, no, so actually, there's, the- so there's three different lines uh, that we're actually talking about. So the community, we set up a community hotline right away when this outbreak occurred. That community can right. call in with questions and, and information, and uh, that's a number that I'm happy to share with you. And then secondly, we set up a number for our employees themselves who have questions sometimes because they're exposed and they might have questions. Right. And so we have a line for them. 
And then, of course, the command center number is different from either one of those. Those are really more operational issues that arise on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis uh, that need to be addressed. The community hotline is there to really address the concerns and questions that members of the community might have, including, you know, where are we doing drive-through testing or, right. uh, you know, when do I get my results back or do I call my doctor or what are the symptoms I need to watch out for? That would be the, I would say, more typical questions that um, community members might have. So, you know, the the thing that impresses me so much is that we are part of such a large system. You know, we're spread across the United States with Trinity Health, the organization. And as you said, we have our system office, and then we have our regional office here in Hartford. But we are always constantly sharing the most up-to-date resources, which I think is so important. And not just to our physicians, but to the community. So we're making sure that we're giving them every resource they could possibly need. I know myself working with physicians in the community every day, they are so impressed with the fact that we are reaching out to them and making sure they have everything they need. Because if they're not part of a system, I'm sure they feel like an island. Yeah, no, you know, I've been a single hospital guy for most of my career, and I I really appreciate now being part of a a system, and not just a regional system, but a national system, you know, with 94 hospitals spread out across 22 states. And actually, there's a tremendous amount of information one gains from that. First of all, this virus, as you see spreading across the country, is impacting different states differently at different times. So you actually can learn uh, from states that having a little bit ahead of you, uh, and then, of course, those who are having a little behind us can learn from us. So that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, because it's such a large system, uh, on the, from a purchasing power point of view and from a stores of supplies and PPE, of course, which is the hot, hot topic, you know, they right. buy things in the hundreds of thousands and the millions and then can distribute as needed to the, quote, unquote, hot spots uh, across uh, the system. So that, that's very Across very our helpful. own system, which is huge. Correct. So, you know, I've thought of that myself because we're so large, you're right, because we're all going to peak at different times. When we talk about this command center, what are some, you know, let's, let's talk about the community. Where are some of the most common community questions that you're asked or that the team is usually asked? Well, I think it's, you know, it's often people call with symptoms and they want to know, you know, what should I do? And, you know, what should right. I watch out for? Should I call my doctor? Where do I go for testing? I would, I would say those are uh, the most common questions. I think then it gets it gets a little more granular. You know, what do I need to clean the house with? How often do I have to clean? Should I be washing my clothes? Uh, uh, you know, my husband or my wife works outside the home. I'm in the home. What should they do when they come come back in? What do I do with now all the boxes that are coming to everyone's homes? Uh, can they be carriers of the infection? Uh, if I'm getting takeout food, what do I have to do? What kind of precautions? You know, there's a lot of you know a lot of those kind of questions. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of anxiety, of course, as you appreciate, and the community. And you know, we want to just give people you know honest, practical answers um, as much as we can. You know, you brought up a few things. We are all doing those things in getting deliveries, right? And whether it be food that we're picking up from outside the home, whether it be you know boxes and stuff that's being delivered because you can't go to the stores. Do what are some of the safety measures that your team is sharing with people that are having making those calls? Yeah, I think it's a little. You know, it's first. I think it's just to relax people a little bit that the risks of contracting something, you know, from a box is probably pretty small. I mean, most infections, viral infections in general, are spread from human to human through you know coughs and sneeze and 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 
close communication, which is why the isolation of six feet is so important, right? Social isolation right. is really the, the most important factor. Uh, but yes, indeed, if, uh, you know, virus particles can live on solid surfaces for hours, days, depending on the actual surface, depending on the temperature, the humidity, and all of those things. So uh, it is possible if someone coughed onto a box or sneezed onto a box, there could be virus particles there that could indeed, then you touch the box and then you touch your mouth, which is the other second important point, is avoid touching your mouth and your eyes, which is easier said than done uh, because the average person touches their mouth, you know, 80, 90 times a day apparently. So um, you have to really, that's where the hand hygiene comes in. So avoid touching your mouth and then frequent washing your hands with soap and water or any hand, a hand sanitizer that's at least 60% alcohol. So I find myself doing that many, many times during the day. As far oh, my as gosh. When I, I can tell you what I do, and I think is, and my, my family, all of whom are hunkered down at home, I think they're very careful. They don't, when they don't bring the house, the box into the house necessarily. Right. They'll open it outside in the garage. Um, they'll bring the items in the, into the home. They won't necessarily put the items on a counter. They'll put it onto a cloth, open the items, take the items out, to put the whatever box is packaging back out in the garage in the recycling bin. And then if you're opening, if we take out food, for example, and you open a container, again, the risks of actually getting an infection from this. Now, we'll learn more, obviously, over time with further, you know, and better epidemiologic studies. But, you know, I think it's you want to be cautious, right? So if you open the package before you eat, wash your hands, which is probably good right. practice anyway. Um, right. And I think then just dispose of the items once again back in the, every time you handle them, you throw them out and then put them in a bag and take them out to the garbage and then wash your hands again. So I think if we do that, I think you're going to mitigate um, any risk, which is probably small in the first place. Right. And it's funny, but it makes you stop and think. And I'm doing, you know, I'm doing the same thing as we're getting deliveries. I'm opening them in the garage and throwing the box out, bringing the stuff in another bag, wiping things down, washing my hands. <laughs> and sometimes you feel like it's overkill, but you just, we're just not sure. So no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It, is, uh, it has changed the way. Actually, someone, I needed to sign something today. Someone handed me a pen, and I had that odd <laughs> moment of looking at the pen. Thinking, I, I don't know if I want to touch that pen. And, you know, I, was like, <laughs> I, I took the pen, and then immediately so Purell, and then washed my hands with soap and water. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the average guy, too, at the end of the day, and uh, I think oh, we, yeah. all, we all are in the same boat. I had to pick something up the other day, and they handed the pen was laying there for me to sign, and I pulled the pen out of my pocketbook. I said, "No, I'm good." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've done that too. Not the okay. pocketbook, but the rest of it. <laughs> no, yeah, I wouldn't think that, but definitely, I, I have my own. Well, you know, you know, we're talking about some of those community calls, but what are some of the concerns you're hearing from docs? I mean, this is a new. This is a new world for them too, right? Yeah. It's a new world yeah. for them. Yeah, it's really. I mean, I you know I've been through plenty of you know you know either financial crises or or we've had flus before. We had H one N one with anthrax, Ebola, yeah. SARS, MERS. I, I've yeah. I've lived through all those. You know, we've done mass casualty preparedness. This is really this really is different. Or if for you know unless you unless you lived in nineteen eighteen, um, this is really different. You have this mm. you know tremendous economic impact that's happened by by a total shutdown uh, at the same time you have this incredible anxiety about a uh, you know an invisible uh, uh, um, uh, enemy so to speak right. and uh, while the risks to an individual 
still, when you do the math, are pretty small. When you work out what are the odds of me getting it, what are the odds of me then getting sick, since we know that probably a quarter of people have no symptoms, 80% have a mild disease, then of the 20% are sick, might need hospitalization, and a, and a smaller percent, a quarter of them end up you know, in an intensive care unit, and then some of them die. So if you work out that math, you say, what's the chance of me, an individual, actually dying from this? It's actually a pretty small number. But, you know, if it's you, it's 100 percent. So I, right. I think everyone always try to, you know, goes to that. And, you know, I try to reassure people that, you know, and Connecticut's uh, experience to date isn't any different than really the rest of the world. The majority of the deaths have occurred in people over 70. And not that, you know, as I'm now in my mid-60s myself, that seems awfully young to me. But um, it, it's somewhat comforting when you, when you talk to people younger, at least. And a right. lot of our staff, of course, fall into that category. That in Connecticut, we've had, what, 85 or so deaths to date, and 70 of them people over 70. So, again, that helps somewhat. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's and the doctors are, and then there's the imp, economic impact to their practices. I mean, their practices are pretty much shut down. And, right. um, and, they're, and, they, and it's the personal part. They're scared as well. You know, they're scared for themselves. Um, and doctors usually aren't really fear-based, is my experience, but I'm, I'm hearing right. more of that than I've ever heard in my life. You know, they're concerned for themselves, and, pr- and more importantly, they're concerned that they're going to bring it to their own homes, right. to, in fact, their spouses, their kids, their parents. Um, a lot of us have elderly parents that we also take care of, and, and is that added dimension? So, again, we're, you know, we're citizens, too, and we have the same issues right. that everyone else has, has. And, you know, we can't buy toilet paper either, by the way, in case you're wondering. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, that, but on top of that, then we actually have to take care of patients who are, who are very sick. So it, this is, uh, you know, at least for me, this is pretty much the most stressful thing uh, professionally I've, I've had to deal with. Yeah, I am, I am humbled by the conversations that I'm actually having with the physicians in the community and the ability for us to just connect with them and make sure they realize they're not island out there, right? And make sure because we have so many resources with our command center and with our leadership, and we want to make sure that we encompass that to our physicians in our community. And they are so grateful for us to be able to be there for them and assist with that. And you mentioned that we're not seeing, you know, our, of course our visits are down in the offices because we're trying to make sure patients are are staying away. That could come later, right? Because why bring them in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the hospitals uh, throughout the country, of course, are, are and I, you know, people want to talk about it, not that they should necessarily, but the economic impact of the hospitals is tremendous. You know, you have on the one hand, we're, 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 we're incurring, a lot increased costs in, in all the supplies that we're using. But hospitals make their money, if you will, you know, at least half of their income generally is from, you know, outpatient surgeries, outpatient procedures and testing, and those have largely disappeared. So, you know, that's another cha- the whole dimension another dimension to the challenge is how do you how do you manage to, you know, run the enterprise and keep the place open and still take care of people who right. are sick who have nothing to do with coronavirus, right? There's still people coming in with heart attacks and strokes and right. who need emergency surgery and you still gotta take care of them and you have to do it in a right. safe way and keep your staff safe at the same time. Um, Absolutely. And, and and the other thing about this whole thing is this degree of uncertainty that I think we all have, right? How many cases yeah. are going to be? When is it going to end? When is going to be the peak? Uh, you know, I think those are, you know, most of the time we go through life and you kind of have a plan. You know what it's going to be like two, three, four months from now. Most of us plan our vacations, you know, four, five, six months from now. Really, everything has just been put on hold uh, at this point. 
Absolutely. Some of the, the questions I have from physicians in the community, and I'm sure that I'm sure that um, individuals out in the community now are, are some of those people. They've had to put off some of their elective surgeries, whether it be orthopedic or eye surgeries or things such as that. And when do you, you know, when when you think about that, do you think that there's definitely going to be time when a lot of people are going to be coming back and trying to get surgeries all at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I think if I, you know, I, I think back to uh, September 11th was was not not certainly not the same thing, but you know, things shut down for for a fair amount of time after that, as you recall. You know, air travel was you know stopped, and a lot of people just hunkered down, stayed home, and you know, watched the news. There was a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, and and you know, I, and I and we had a lot of cancellations of activity at that time, and then virtually all of that. You know, like, I mean, if you if you have severe back pain and you need a back surgery, you've had hip pain and knee pain for years, and you finally decide to have surgery, you know, you'll put it off, but you're not going to not have it done. So there is a, a period of catch up, I guess I'll call it, right, where uh, you'll have increased volume for some period of time. Some stuff never comes back. Obviously, our you know, for example, our emergency department volume is substantially down. Um, you know, those patients by now, you know, a month from now will have been better or figured out some something else. And right. uh, tests that people had are you know have come and gone now. So you get some of it back, not all of it back. Right, and I think it's I think it's it's tough because you can't predict because we don't know. We don't know who's not going to follow through with with something right. they may or may right. not have planned. Yeah, and it's not, and, and and we could, you know, we just like we plan on surging capacity for for this. We right. sur, we can, you know, we. But the problem is the timing. <laughs> we don't know when right. we're going to be surging uh, for this. Right. So you know, it's not like you say, okay, I'll I can start booking cases in June first, you know, or July first, or August first, and so it's that whole added dimension of of just uh, insecurity and uncertainty. I, you know, by the way, I don't want to make a, a financial conversation. I, I'm glad, actually, that people are staying home. I'm, I'm incredibly Absolutely. grateful, actually, to your listeners, uh, as we all are in healthcare, who are really complying. Uh, you know, as I drive the, the highway to work every day, and I see really pretty much no one on the road, and I see no one anywhere. Um, I, I think that I'm hoping, and I think we all are, uh, up in the Hartford market in particular, and uh, all up through you know up through um, our our Trinity Health in New England from Waterbury up to Springfield, we are hoping that we'll be able to flatten the curve somewhat by people staying home and staying out of the emergency department because both we don't want them bringing disease in, and we don't want them right. getting disease in our emergency department. So we're very appreciative so you, of the public's uh, effort in this regard. You talk about, you know, we're talking about that quote-unquote social distancing. So let's maybe talk about that a bit because now that's the new buzzword that we're all using is social distancing. But do you think it is working? Do you think that we've been able to somewhat flatten our curve? Or do you think that there's still room for, for us to be able to do better? Well, I think time will tell if we have flattened the curve in this area. I, I think uh, I think Governor Lamont did a really good job in in doing the things he did early. And of course, we all saw, you know, we were all watching television, seeing states that haven't done so, and, and some still not doing so. I have to say, I'm right. I'm stunned myself. I look at them and I go, wow, what, what are they thinking? And I I almost wish I could bring them into you know my intensive care unit. I said, this is kind of what happens if you don't do that. Right. Um, I've had friends and family in New York who, you know, got out of town when they saw people weren't, you know, weren't adhering to the policies at all. I mean, they were just still out in bars and, and hanging out in groups and having parties. And when they said, you know, we're getting out of here and they came up here. So 
Uh, I'm very hopeful that those things have made a difference based on the data we've now seen from other states and other countries. You know, we have the Chinese experience. We've seen what happened in Washington, that you really can bend this curve or, or again, flatten the curve is really more appropriate. So you get, you know, you get, your peaks are just not as high. And then, of course, right. it's it a little wider. So spread out over um, a, a greater period of time where hospitals then could deal with it, frankly. Right. They have the resource, more resources at their fingertips if it's a slower transgression versus it peaking all at the same time. Correct. Exactly. You know, our hospitals are wonderful in this country and, 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 have, and have a fair amount of flexibility in how much they can flex up and flexing down. It, but, you know, there is, a, there is a limit. And that's why we're all, we all are plan, have surge plans now where we're looking at spaces that, you know, we didn't use to consider potential intensive care units or potential hospital beds or where can we put them. And I think we all, we all throughout the state, we have a great collaboration, not just within Trinity Health in New England, but also across the state through the Connecticut Hospital Association. We have uh, regular calls where we all connect, all the COs uh, of the, uh, on the hospitals in the state connect too. So we learn from each other as well what's going on in the state. And we talk about all the uh, potential uh, spaces and places we could find for, for patients. You know, I'm so glad that you brought that up because those those are some of the points we I really wanted to get across tonight to the community that they understood what happens behind the scenes and what our 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 doctors and our leadership is doing across the state to collaborate so that we know what each other's doing. There's no competition here. It's one state and you know, really one healthcare system right now. Yeah, no, we're very well said. You know, this is not a time for competition; it's time for cooperation, right. and and I think that's certainly uh, that's certainly the order of the day. That's that is what is happening. I think regionally we're doing it, and across the state we're doing it, and really and nationally we're doing it. Can we touch back a little bit more on social distancing? Because sure. you know we're talking about yes, you know people staying home from work, and you know, and we see really funny videos of of people kind of talking through their fam- from their family through their car windows to the houses. What does that mean? Like, what you know? I have a I have an elderly mom that I'm her only caregiver, so you know I. I try to stay away from her as much as I can because she does pretty well on her own, but I need to be there at certain times. But I really try to go in and out, you know, and I'm sure people in the community are thinking the same thing. Can I, like, just go see my grandkids really quick for five minutes? Like, you know, what are some some things we can can share? Yeah, I know. I think those are great. Uh, You know, I can't, I don't have any grandchildren, but I can't imagine, you know, not being able to see them or hold them. That's got to be incredibly challenging for folks. Oh, um, so, you know, what I'm hearing is, uh, you know, and I hear from my, from my own colleagues, uh, physicians who have elderly parents, and they literally, you know, go to the house and they'll look in the window, they'll wave through the window and, and talk through the window, and they'll bring stuff and supplies and then leave them at the doorstep because uh, nobody wants to infect their parent or in-law. No. And, and have something happen to them because, my goodness, I mean, you feel bad for the next 99 years. I mean, there's no, there's no visit that's worth that. Um, so I think uh, those things are indeed helpful. If you think about it, if you have two elderly parents, uh, you know, or grandparents in a home and they're just there themselves and they never leave, I mean, they're not going to get sick, right? <laughs> unless, right. You, unless somebody brings them into the house. So that's, right. 
and 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 I think people have to keep. And this is this is where the perspective comes in. It's critical to try to keep the long-term view. And I have to admit, even though I'm an obstetrician by training, I've now become much more of a long-term, long-term <laughs> thinker. And um, this is going to pass. Uh, it, it may be a month. It may be six months. It could be a year. But it is going to pass. And and hopefully at some future date, this will just be kind of like a really bad memory for most of us that we survived and got through. And uh, right. like a serious illness that we've recovered from or like a loss in our family that we've recovered from, we're, we're going to get through this. Yes, it's going to be challenging. Yes, it's going to be difficult. Yes, it's going to be painful at times, but we're going to get through it. So people just have to understand that this is temporary and do the best they can. But, yeah, and thank goodness for technology that's available today, which, you know, once upon a time, I mean, just think just – you know, we've all been stuck to our phones now for, for, for seemingly forever, but it wasn't much more than a decade ago. There was no FaceTiming. Um, there were right. no cell phones. Uh, you know, 15 years ago, there was no cell phone, right? So, you know, right. now you can Skype and you could do so much through WebExes, conferences. I think everyone's learning now how much you could do from home uh, and, and, and through FaceTiming and, and Zoom conferences and things like that. So that, I think that really, really helps. What do you think this is going to do? You know, we, we definitely can talk about how it's going to change all of our lives forever. But being a healthcare professional, Doc, what do you think this is going to do to the healthcare profession? Do you see it changing forever? What do you see the future holds for all of you? You know, if you, if, when you study the history of medicine, you know, a lot of uh, innovations have occurred during or after times of crisis. Um, you know, even this concept of mobile field hospitals, you know, that really came out from war, right? Uh, right. A lot of surgical advances uh, came after the Civil War in this country. Um, things, procedures that were never done before, anesthesia, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of innovation came, comes through these crises. And I, I do think uh, there will be some learning opportunities. Look at the virus development work. Look how quickly, you know, so I came up during the HIV era, and, you know, we couldn't even talk about it for a Me while. Too. Right? We didn't even talk about it. And then it took, it took years to figure out what the disease was, what the yeah. virus eventually was, and then years later to come up with cures, right? And this virus, right. you know, really within weeks, the entire genome of the RNA sequences was determined. Uh, tests were developed to identify the virus. Antibody tests are, are coming online. Uh, and this is all within, you know, I mean, assuming everything started around, we'll call it January 1st. I mean, here we are only April 1st, right? So three right. months later, and we have now, we've identified the virus. We know its entire genome. We have tests to identify its presence. We're developing tests to develop antibodies. In other words, to know who's had it already, uh, who's immune and can't get it. And vaccine development is well underway. And I wouldn't really be surprised if, and normally vaccines take years to develop, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a year from now we're talking they, there would be a, a commercially available vaccine available and also testing to know, oh, you don't need the vaccine. You actually had it and you probably had a mild case and you never knew it. So, well, you know I what? Think you that, bring up a good point, too, because that, people you know, have asked me happening. about that. If you have it, can you get it again? Yeah, I think I think the most viral infections you don't get again. Uh, and I, and I thought, we, you know, again, we're going to learn more. This is where the epidemiologic studies come in, where you can really test a wider population and see who's got right. antibodies. We do know that some people seem to carry the virus for them for a while. 
Uh, there have been a few anecdotal reports that people said they got it again, but it could be just a recurrent disease. In other words, it hasn't cleared yet, uh, and right. you just retested them. Uh, so I, I think the chance of getting, and there's very few viral infections that you actually get the same virus again. And then you again. may get another coronavirus, you know, the SARS and MERS are coronaviruses. There's common cold viruses that are coronaviruses. Uh, but I think in general, once you have immunity to this, you're probably not going to get it again. Now, sometimes many, many, many years later, you'll lose that immunity and you can get a disease again. That happens. But I think we, time will tell uh, the answer to, to all of that. Uh, I did want to just comment on your question, though, about, you know, innovation, what else will change? You know, what will change? I mean, I have a first cousin who's in the restaurant business, and he said to me, I think that's it. That's the end of restaurants. Nobody's going to go eat, and they're not going to sit six feet apart. My waiters aren't going to be able to have gloves on. And I think we're social. Human beings are social creatures, and I I still think there's going to be a – now, there's no doubt, and I feel terrible for folks in the industry, in the the hospitality industry in general, and restaurants in particular, who, by the way, have been incredibly – generous and grateful. I mean, we had, you know, 100 slices or 100 small pizzas delivered today. Uh, We had food delivered here every day from the restaurants around have been so grateful, so generous. So we have somebody working full time coordinating the care of the the visits of the food. Wow. I'll tell you another another innovation that's happened, which was kind of fledgling slowly coming on board was telehealth where people had, Mm -hmm. you know, a telephone or computer basically consultation. Um, people, doctors of all types of specialties are now learning how much they could do with their patients remotely. And that's the whole telehealth field, which, you know, up until now wasn't really being embraced by actually either patients or doctors that much. And now I've had orthopedic surgeons tell, call me and say, I can't believe how much I could do on the phone. They watch the patient. Okay, let me see you raise your arm, lower your arm. Let me see you walk. Uh, does this right. hurt? Does that hurt? And they can look at the films online. I mean, just to... Just a decade ago, you couldn't do really any of that. So I think telemedicine is probably going to be here to stay and continue to expand would be my, my sense. I think that's one Agreed. thing. I, I think the, the whole all the testing we talked about, the whole immunology testing, is, is I think a lot of advances will come from that. And I, I think I'm hopeful that. And, you know, sometimes we have short memories, uh, and probably America more so than other countries. But, you know, I hope we learn from this and don't forget what happened here. Because the pandemic preparedness is something that, you know, most of us in healthcare have been preparing for years. You know, ever since any of us have read about the 1918 epidemic, we've always thought about it. And we had the, you know, Ebola, SARS, and MERS. So we've been preparing for it. But I think we're now identifying some of the weaknesses. Uh, across the country, and I'm hoping when this is all said and done, that we we put in place the proper steps, procedures, supplies um, to to deal with the next one, which may be 50 years from now, or 75 years from now, or 100 years from now. But we don't want those folks just to look back at us and say, "Oh, why don't we? Why didn't they tell us? Why didn't they teach us?" You know, that would be that would be a real sin. And you know, it's it's funny because as I as I have you know, been talking to to a lot of physicians over the last several weeks, they're saying the same thing that you know we thought we were ready, we we were close, but there's always something you can learn, right? And right. in healthcare, we learn every day. We don't know everything. We learn every day, so we have to look at what happened now and hopefully take what we're learning and make it better moving forward and make us all better for the experience itself. Absolutely. 
So we talked a bit, you just mentioned telemedicine. So I want to talk about that just a tiny bit more. Our doctors in our Training Health of New England Medical Group are all starting to utilize that too, I know, to a very high degree. Correct. So we we started instituting, I know it's it's hard to roll it out all at once, but we started doing more and more of that. And it's incredible because it allows you, like you said, the opportunity to be able to see a patient um, that you would normally have seen in your office now you can see from the safety of your own home. And I think my millennial doctors are really into this. Yeah, it's you know it's not just the millennials. Let me tell you, I think we often think that, but I, you know I've got seventy-year-old doctors that embrace technology as fast as the thirty-year-olds. Um, I, I think everyone everyone has is, can learn how to do it. I mean, it's not you know everyone's online these days. Uh, I think right. we're no we're no different than the public, and uh, I, I think people can embrace the technology. And it's only going to think about it, it's only going to get easier. It's not going to get harder with time. Oh, absolutely. And just so our community knows, you can actually access that right on our all of our websites. So if you go Correct. on Trinity Health of New England, uh, org, and you click on um, our header on the website, it will give you the ability to do a virtual visit. And you can log in and um, update your information in there, and you will be set up with a virtual visit with a physician. I think that's an incredible opportunity. Absolutely. So we have on our homepage, too, you know, coronavirus, what you need to know. And one of the things is about our testing sites. And I know we talked a bit about the testing, but we do have drive-through testing at all of our sites, correct, Doc? Yeah, we have uh, all our sites have drive-through testing uh, open six or seven days a week. Uh, We just noticed last Sunday actually we had a significant drop-off. Uh, so we're going to reduce some of the Sundays and, and frankly, give our, our our team a little bit of a respite because they've been out there killing themselves in cold and rain. And uh, but we uh, on the on the website, people can find the hours of operation, um, yep. and we have them at St. Mary's in Waterbury, and right here in Hartford, and up at Johnson Memorial and at Mercy. All all of us have drive-through testing. We've tested, I think, up until today about. 4,000 people already uh, collectively between the hospitals and through the drive-through testing. So uh, it's worked pretty smoothly. Our, our staff have done a great job of this. There's tents out there, and it's just really very, very seamless. We just want to make sure that we update the community, too. They need an order from their doctor, correct? Correct. Correct. Because we don't provide the order. They can't just show up for testing. Correct. And a lot, and, and people don't, you know, I think, uh, I, thanks for asking the question, actually. I think people, you know, if you, if you feel like you have a cold and, and a low-grade fever, I'm not sure you need to come in to get tested for coronavirus. I mean, I think, I think you know, just stay home and isolate yourself and, and, and call your doctor uh, or, or, call, or, call, or call our hotline if you want more information. Uh, because most of the time, whatever it is, it could be a cold or it could be the flu. Let's not forget you know, we're still in flu season, um, and or it could be a mild case of this, and you don't really need to come in and, and have a test. Just stay home and isolate yourself from your family as you would with any other infection, and your doctor will, you know, should guide you. If you start getting a more substantial cough and uh, or certainly any shortness of breath, uh, there's no doubt your doctor will tell you to, to come on in and have uh, dry, do the drive-through testing. Or, and if you're really sick, obviously, from really difficulty breathing, um, you would, and that's the case, you would come to the emergency department. 
And that's what they could see a little bit, too, on some of these virtual visits or the telemedicine, is they can see if a patient's having some difficulty breathing and, and a little bit more so than, than a general cold. Absolutely. I mean, I used to do that with my with my late mother-in-law. I could talk from the phone and just tell that she had mm-hmm. to stop in between, uh, you know, couldn't complete a full sentence without stopping for a breath. But now right. there's no doubt you actually could see it. You could see people, you know, stopping and taking that breath using so-called accessory muscles, you know, raising your shoulders and trying to get your, get your breath and struggling a little bit. You could even see their color. Uh, is not as, you know, pink as it normally would be. I mean, there's a lot you could tell by looking at someone. You know, I, I think a good clinician, and I think we all learn this in school, you know, most of being a good doctor is really taking a good history. Uh, and usually you have you figure out what people have with that alone. The physical exam, while important, it typically confirms what you've already figured out by asking the good questions by looking at the patient. And what we want to try to avoid, too, is flooding our emergency rooms with these patients. Absolutely. I, I think, again, for multiple reasons, right? The emergency departments uh, need to take care of the really sick patients. Um, and, uh, you know, there's really no reason to come to the emergency department to get a test, right? Um, right. And, it, and if you are sick, then we're here for you. And, and also, you don't want to potentially, you know, we do our best to isolate patients and protect them, but um, you don't want to come into the hospital and actually acquire something. And you right. certainly don't want to necessarily come in and infect a whole bunch of folks for a disease that you may have a mild case of. You know, on the website, and I've been working um, with with this a lot today, is we have something for our community, but through our doctors, the patient would have to be referred. It's our a fever and upper respiratory infection clinic. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Because we've had yeah, some the questions. medical group has uh, opened up a few of those uh, again for exactly that. Because again, we are in flu season, and of course, we have now uh, COVID nineteen disease. So. Uh, right. For people with a fever and an upper respiratory infection, which is certainly how uh, some of these patients can present, and indeed, the, you know, if you're if you're symptomatic, the majority of patients then will have this combination of cough, upper respiratory infection, and and fever, so they can come to a, a fever clinic, so to speak, to actually be seen uh, and evaluated by a clinician. And I know a lot of our docs are doing that telemedicine visit first. And then if they feel they need more hands-on, they can refer them over to that, which is so much better than sending them to the emergency room. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's one more layer in there, right? So if, right. if it's mild, you'd go to the drive-in center. A little more severe and you really need to be seen and your doctor's office might not be open right now, right, because of this. That's a place where we can, you know, a provider can actually put hands-on, stethoscope on the chest and really evaluate you. Also, and again, an environment that's, designed to avoid infecting others, right? You come in, you got a mask right. on, uh, and so you don't get infected and, and you don't infect others. And then you could, and then obviously if you're sick, so it's a basically triaging then, okay, you really need to come into the hospital. We see your oxygen levels low, or you're really struggling breathing. You need, to, you need to come in, and then they would come to the emergency department. So it's a layer in between the drive-through test and the emergency department. And then the ED is prepared to receive you. So if you have to be transferred, the ED is prepared. You're not just walking in, you know, off the street and then showing up at the desk with a room full of others. And so they're prepared and they know how to bring you in and to isolate you right away. And it's about that social distancing in with all of our patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you found it hard with the medical group for them to maintain social distance, colleague to colleague? 
Yeah, I know. It's pretty funny uh, how we've all adapted again. I think we're all, you know, again, we're kind of the average citizen in many ways. I mean, I, I get in and sometimes I get in the elevator and there's someone else in there and it's like nobody says anything. But you, all, all of a sudden, it's, it's like fires in the ring. You know, everybody goes to their own, their own corner. And um, and it's really, uh, and it's just, this is hard for me. You know, I grew up in a, a very ethnic Greek household where everybody's hugging and kissing all the time. And yeah. and uh, even I've been able to adapt. Uh, no, I think, I think they're doing okay. We're not even doing the old elbow bumps that, you know, no we started more. with, I think. Everyone gets no it more. now. And... Well, you I'm know sorry. me really well, Doc. When I see you, I give all my physicians a hug. I, c- I can't anymore. Now, that's why they, they have me very social distanced, because I would I would contaminate everybody. Yeah, it'll be curious to see how that how we, that all works out at the end. Um, you know, I guess the handshake, I was, you know, someone was telling me the other day about the history of the handshake was, you know, back in the probably the Middle Ages when people used to hide a, a, a dagger up their sleeve. Um, yeah. So the handshake wasn't really a handshake; it was actually a kind of a forearm <laughs> shake. And, uh, and then, so when people say "What's up his sleeve?" you know, they're really talking about a, a knife. <laughs> so that was a way. That was a way of making sure your close communication was safe, right? That there wasn't a knife up your sleeve. So I don't yeah. think you have to worry oh about God. that. But it'll be. It will be interesting to see what happens. Uh, you know, when this I is over, I, I certainly hope we don't lose all semblance of. Because um, uh, there is something. There's nothing like a human touch. I, I think, uh, and I, I think it's it's it's. It's hard for all of us, I'm sure, but we'll That's going to be incredibly hard for me. We'll We'll get there. We'll get there. We will. You know, very much like when you think of 9-11, you know, I I think back to that as our most recent, you know, stop and pause moment in time, right? And I think everybody was so afraid to travel, to fly. They were afraid of everything, you know, afraid of going to large venues. They didn't know what was going to happen. And we do get past it. So hopefully this will do the same. And, Rob, I think that's a great point. I I think I was speaking to another clinician today about that, and and we actually had that conversation that you kind of knew at that time, right, that things were going to change. Right. things were never going to – we actually – I remember thinking, wow, things are never going to be the same again. Things will not be the same for my children um, as they were for me growing up. I mean, I grew up – we used to, you know, hide under the desk, hide under the desk in in case the atomic bomb was dropped, which I never really quite could help figure out what that desk was going to help me for. But, but I think now, it's, now, but you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm no different than anyone else. I mean, I go into a movie theater now. I'm not telling you I don't go to the movies, but if I go into a movie theater, not obviously not now, but uh, you know, right. I, I look to see where the emergency exits are. Uh, when I get on a plane, I'm pretty careful about, you know, reading the instructions and, you know, I actually tend to sit by the exit door and up just cause I'm a little tall and I need the leg room, but you know, I, I want to be there to help open that door and help people get out. Uh, I think right. we all have changed a little bit. Uh, you know, yeah, and there's a little more. You get to the airport a little earlier now, and I was I was one of those people that showed up, you know, at the last minute, and th- those days are over. Um, but you do feel a little more secure, and, you know, you realize that, you know, bags are checked, and, and it's um, – so we have we have modified our behavior, but we still travel, um, and, uh, and I think we're going to get back to that. But there will be an adjustment period. There's no doubt about it. I think people will – Think twice about travel. They'll think twice about hotels. They'll think twice about restaurants. Um, and but you know, I think this is where I do think we will come back to something more than certainly what it is right now. Because we're Maybe naturally like social. We are naturally social, and we we crave human interaction. And I think we can't get away from that. We just have to be smart and better prepared, and I think we will be. And I think our medical community is going to be better prepared. Absolutely. 
I, I do. I do. I sincerely think that. So as we are coming to the close, I want to make sure that we give people some of the resources they need. So we mentioned that um, our um, hotline for patients and for the yes. community, the community hotline. So we want to give that out, Doc. If you don't have it, I sure. have it. Yeah, I have it. It's 888-786-2790. 888-786-2790. And when is that? You know, when can people call? It's Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I should have said that. It's 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day. Seven days That's a awesome. week. Right 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And who mans that? Doc? Uh, they're clinicians, uh, nurse practitioners, uh, nurses, doctors, uh, it's clinicians. And I'm volunteer. I volunteer for that line locally, so I do know that they can use my old nursing schools, nursing skills that I haven't used in 30 years. At least I can answer questions. Yeah, well, we prep people and try those little training periods so you can, you're, you know, competent to answer uh, most questions. And again, an ability to, you know, again, you can arc it up yourself and get back to people if, if the answer is not, not readily available. And we have all of our local websites, as I always give out to everyone, stmh.org is the local one for St. Mary's. They're all part of the Trinity Health of New England website. And for St. Francis, it's stfranciscare.org. Um, you can go on to either one. Our resource page is basically pretty much the same. Um, and we have a sliders that go across and give you all the information regarding what you need to know. And there's a little click bar you can clip on, click on, coronavirus, what you need to know. So Dr. John Rodas, I cannot thank you enough for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for being there, President of St. Francis Hospital, our sister hospital um, up in Hartford. Well, thanks so much, Robert, for having me on. And I really appreciate the work that the you know, media does. I think people often don't recognize uh, how important the role you guys play in communicating to the public. Um, you know, we're here hunkered down, uh, working in and out. But I know you're doing the same uh, while you're home or in a studio. So we, we certainly appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, Doc. Take care. Stay safe. Have a good night. So I want to thank everybody for joining us tonight. This is Robin Sills, um, medically speaking, from St. Mary's Hospital, uh, Trinity Health of New England. You can definitely email me questions that you might have. Robin, R-O-B-I-N, dot, Sills, like window Sills, at Trinity Health of ne that stands for new england trinity health of ne.org um and i'm happy to answer any questions you may have had for dr rodas that you couldn't do um or call into so i apologize for that and we will be probably doing this again remotely um for our next show in two weeks um i will probably be bringing on another healthcare professional because i'm sure everything is going to change in two weeks and we're going to have more updated information this will be available on a, at our on our podcast on iTunes under Medically Speaking. So if you missed it and you want more information or you want to hear it again, we will have this up on our website for you to click on to or you can go onto iTunes and download it. So again, Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Have a safe, safe week and weekend and maintain your social distance. And we are here if you need us. Um, please remember to call that a command center line or a resource line, the hotline, I should call it, at one 786 2790 Have a great weekend.